Well, this morning, uh, folks, we're continuing in our uh, journey through the book of, of Jeremiah, uh, where we've been dipping in and out in our, in our series, Life Before Death. And as we've been reading this account uh, of the life and times of Jeremiah we've, uh, and the people of God in those days, we've seen the relevancy and the need for some things for us in our day. If we are to receive the blessing and the fullness of life that God wants us to have and to enjoy. So far we've seen the need for leadership and we've seen the need for repentance, judgment and commitment. Today we look at the need for living words living words. So as we come to God's Word, let us pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are present with us now by the power of Your Spirit and by Your Word. So please take Your Word this morning, move by Your Spirit, and make it a living Word to us, a Word that informs our minds and warms our hearts as the Spirit moves amongst us in a very real and special way today. And so help us to respond to you in faith as you lead. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Folks, we're turning to Jeremiah, and we're going to read from chapter 7, uh, verses 1 to 8. That's reading from Jeremiah 7, 1 to 8. You may turn it on in your uh, in your device, or there's Bibles under most of the seats, so let me encourage you to, to reach for one of those and, and have the Word open as we read it together. It will, of course, be on the screens as well. So this is the Word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the Word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I give to your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Well, the story is told of a man who, uh, he was a man who had gotten a little bit hard of hearing. In fact, he, he couldn't hear anything at all. Uh, and he was completely completely deaf. He had gone completely deaf. And so he went along to see his doctor, and his doctor fixed him up with two very modern little hearing aids uh, that, that were uh, they're so tiny you couldn't even see them. And he said to the man, uh, go away for a couple of weeks, come back in a fortnight, let me know how you're getting on. And uh, well, the man went away, and two weeks later he came back to report to his doctor, and his doctor said, well, how are you getting on uh, with the new hearing aids? And the man said, they're absolutely brilliant, they're absolutely great. He said, I can hear everything absolutely perfectly. And the beauty is that nobody can even, see, uh, can even see them. And what do your family think about your new hearing aids? Asked the doctor. Oh, oh, said the man, they don't even know that I have them. And I just sit around and listen <laughs> to them talking about me. And I've already changed my will twice. 
Now, what we hear and how we hear it makes a difference. What we hear and how we hear it makes a difference. And in our world, there are many different words and voices clambering to be heard. They're competing for our attention, competing words and voices vying to shape and to influence us and our destiny. And we see it here in Jeremiah 7 that we've just read. They are in verse 8, deceptive words that are worthless. Or there are in verse 2, the word of the Lord. In Psalm 119, King David writes, Your word is a lamp for my feet. In John 6, Simon Peter says, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. And you know, really, as we go through life, we are faced with the choice of which words. Which words will we allow to shape us to determine our destiny? There are the deceptive words of the world, the flesh, and the devil, which will lead ultimately only to darkness and to death. Or the words of the Lord that give us light and give us life and life in all its fullness and even life eternal as we trust in Him and listen to them. And you see, God is always throughout the Bible and throughout history, He's inviting us, exhorting us, commanding us to hear Him, to listen to His voice. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 6, Moses exhorts the people to hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Hear, listen. Listen up. Listen for God. And in the New Testament, in John 10, Jesus said, My sheep, listen. Listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me, and I give them eternal life. Hear, O Israel, the Lord. Jesus' sheep listen to the voice of their good shepherd. So as we listen for the Lord, how do we hear his voice today? Well, as a staff team, we're reading this book by Pete Gregg, How to Hear, How to Hear God, a Simple Guide for Normal People. We're being charitable to ourselves by calling ourselves normal. But How to Hear God, a Simple Guide for Normal People. And in this book, Pete says, he helps us to hear God in Jesus, in the Bible, in prayer, and in prophecy. There's a number of different ways to hear God, and let me encourage you to perhaps pick up this book and have it as a little bit of, of summer reading, How to Hear God by Pete Gregg. But this weekend as a nation, we have been celebrating the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. And on the day that she was crowned as Queen 70 years ago, as part of the coronation ceremony in Westminster Abbey, Her Majesty was presented with a Bible. She was presented with a Bible by the moderator of the Church of Scotland. And, and, and as he presented it, he presented it with these words, Our gracious Queen, to keep Your Majesty ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God, as the rule of the whole life and government of Christian princes, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. Here is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. An oracle is something through which God speaks. And this is the most valuable thing in the world. Our catechism, our shorter catechism, it has 107 questions. And the first question says, what is man's primary purpose? What are we here for? 
And a lot of people have learned the answer to this question. Man's primary purpose is to glorify the Lord and enjoy Him forever. I think it's a great thing to be here for, isn't it? But of the second of the 107 questions, it asks, what authority from God directs us how to, how to glorify and enjoy Him? <clears throat> and the answer is the only authority for glorifying and enjoying Him is the Bible, which is the Word of God and made up of the Old and New Testaments. Our catechism places the Bible as the foundation, the very starting point for everything else that we do. And the first of the 33 articles of our Westminster Confession of Faith does the same with these words. The whole will of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory and for our salvation. Faith and life is either expressly stated in Scripture or by good and necessary reasoning may be deduced from Scripture. And this is, of course, right in line with what Scripture says about itself when Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So this Pentecost Sunday, we remember here at Orangefield that we are a people of His presence. We hunger for His Spirit. We're a people of His Word. We read our Bibles. And in these two things, you see, folks, we focus on the Spirit of God coming together with the written Word of God and making it to us the living Word of God. Speaking to our hearts and minds and lives as we hear from Him and listen and respond to Him in faith. We open ourselves to His Holy Spirit and we ask Him to take the written Word, the Logos Word, and to make it the living Word, the Rima Word, that both informs our minds and warms our hearts. As He speaks to us and as He works in us. And I think as we open ourselves to the Holy Spirit, there are two things that will give us confidence in the Bible as a written Word and lead us to, to finding light and life in it today and in the days ahead. And that is knowing how and when we got the Bible and trusting it as God's Word. So firstly, how and when did we get the Bible? I don't know if you've ever thought much about this, but let's look briefly at this this morning. Because I think if we understand a little bit about the history of the Bible and how we got it, then it can help us to trust in its authenticity. The Bible as we have it today, 66 books, 39 books in the Old Testament, originally written in Hebrew, 27 in the New Testament, originally written in Greek, with little bits of Aramaic thrown in here and there just to keep us on our toes. So we see it, it didn't just fall from heaven like this. It didn't, no, rather it came from God over hundreds of years, little by little. And it was not complete until the end of the, the first century AD. We call the book, the books of the Bible, the canon of Scripture. You see, back in the Old Testament days, Hebrew believers recognized God's messengers, the Israelite prophets, the priests, and the kings. And they accepted their word, their, their writings as inspired by God. This Old Testament canon was, was set around uh, 140 BC. For the New Testament, the, the process of recognition began in the first century of the Christian church. <clears throat> Excuse me. We see in 2 Peter chapter 3 that Peter immediately recognized Paul's writings as Scripture. The gospel accounts of the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and the letters of Paul to the church, 
and to individuals, we're, we're certainly accepted as the Word of God. The, the, the church meetings as a council of Hippo in 393 AD in modern-day Algeria and the Council of Carthage in 397 AD in modern-day Tunisia, they affirmed the 27 books of the New Testament as authoritative. As they considered the books, and in order to determine what books were truly inspired by the Holy Spirit, the council in prayer asked the following questions as they considered the books. They said, was the author an apostle? Someone who actually spent time with Jesus or very close to an apostle. Is the book being accepted by the wider church, the wider body of Christ? Does the book contain consistency of doctrine and orthodox teaching? Did the book bear evidence of the high spiritual and moral values that, we would, that would reflect the work of the Holy Spirit? And so as they applied these criteria, by His Spirit, God brought His church to the recognition of the books that He had inspired. Folks, we can put our faith in the Bible that we have today, knowing that God, working by His Spirit and through His people, inspired it. And so from the conclusions drawn by the 4th century church councils and translating from the original Hebrew and Greek, the Latin Vulgate was produced by Jerome in 400 AD. There's Jerome sitting in his office. He's working, translating, giving us the Latin Vulgate Bible in 400 AD. An English translation was made by John Wycliffe in 1384. And then the authorized version was approved by King James in 1611. And this is not King James, but this is the then Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Rowan, uh, Rowan Williams, Rowan Williams with an original copy of the authorized version on its 400th birthday in 2011. And of course, many different versions of the Bible have been produced in English over the years uh, since, and the most popular being the, the, the New International Version, which first appeared in 1973 and has been followed by several uh, updated newer editions. Of course, on, uh, Bible translation is an ongoing affair. Wycliffe Bible translators and others uh, whom we, we partner and support, they're still working tirelessly to, to translate the Bible into those last remaining languages. So that's how we got our Bible. And so the other question we might ask is, this morning is, how do we know that the Bible is the Word of God? Well, how we got it certainly is part of the answer to that question. And there is, of course, much that could be said about this, but just briefly this morning. And you know, there are many other writings and books that are looked to for spiritual direction. Muslims look to the Quran. Mormons look to the Book of Mormon. Hindus look to the Bhagavad Vita. Other people look to Confucius or, or Buddha uh, to the right, their writings or, or to other writings. But what sets the Bible apart, apart from all these other books? What evidence supports the claim that the Bible is the Word of God? Well, the great English preacher C.H. Spurgeon, he was once asked if he could defend the Bible, to which he replied, defend the Bible? I would as soon defend a lion. Let it loose. It can defend itself. So let us allow the Bible to defend itself this morning by looking at the evidence for its divine authorship. And I would, I would suggest that this evidence falls into two categories. Internal evidence, that's the evidence that we find from within the Bible, and external evidence, that's evidence that we find outside of it. Let's start with this internal evidence. The Bible is the Word of God. The first piece of evidence we look to is its claim, its claim of divine origin. You see, there are very few books that actually claim to be divinely inspired. And I suppose that we would expect a book that 
written by God to claim divine inspiration. But just claiming that wouldn't make it so. The Bible claims to be divinely inspired and contain the very words of God. Expressions like, thus says the Lord, and the word of the Lord came to, well, for instance, Jeremiah, as we've just read. Expressions such as these are recorded nearly 4,000 times in the pages of Scripture. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, which I quoted a few minutes ago, Paul speaks of the Bible being divinely inspired. In 2 Peter chapter 1, the apostle Peter explains something of the inspiration process when he writes, prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is an important first piece of evidence. We wouldn't even consider the Bible to be the Word of God if it didn't actually claim to be so. Second piece of internal evidence, the unity of the Bible. It's amazing. It's a miracle, actually. The Bible was written by around 40 different people over a period of about 1,600 years, and yet it never contradicts itself. Rather, it presents a singular, unified message of one great, cohesive salvation story unfolded from Genesis to Revelation. These 40 different authors, they lived in different times, separated by hundreds of years. They wrote in three different languages. They lived on three different continents. The biblical authors, uh, writers came from many different walks of life, including kings and philosophers, fishermen and tax collectors, doctors and prophets, tent makers and herdsmen. And there are, of course, different genres or, or types of, of literature in the Bible. It's like a mini library. In the Old Testament, you've got books of, of law, of history, of wisdom, uh, poetry, songs. You've got books of prophecy. And then in the New Testament, you've got the, the gospels, the history, letters, and again, prophecy. And then we must understand and read each book as we would read and understand that particular genre or type of writing. Like, you wouldn't read your washing machine manual in the same way as you read a letter from a boyfriend or girlfriend, for instance. We must read and understand the different genres that are in there. But the complete coherency of the Bible involving different writers and different genres, perfectly organized this, around this one theme of God's gracious redemption of mankind. You see, such a miracle of unity can only be explained by there being one divine author, God himself. So the unity of the Bible is another uh, in, uh, important proof of divine inspiration. A third piece of internal evidence is, uh, is this, the fulfillment of prophecy in the Bible. Hundreds of prophecies of future events are recorded in Scripture. Some of them were written hundreds or even thousand years before their fulfillment. No other book in history has ever dared to so predict the future as the, to the degree the Bible has. And the prophecies are very specific and very accurate. In the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies made about the Messiah. Over 300 prophecies made about Jesus, which he in his life and death and resurrection and ascension, fulfilled. And these prophecies were made hundreds of years before Jesus came. They were things that, that he could not have fulfilled just by knowing about them. You see, the prophecies included things like his birth, the place of his birth, Bethlehem, the tribe he would be born into, Judah. Now, these are things that you can't arrange for yourself. The prophecies included specifics about how he would die, crucified between, between thieves, 
hundreds of years before he was even born. This was prophesied. So this verifiable prophetic fulfillment of a convincing is a convincing internal proof for the truthfulness of the Bible. So let's look now briefly at the external evidence that the word, that the Bible is the word of God. The first piece of, of external evidence is, I believe, the Bible's indestructibility. It is the best known book in the history of the world. It is the annual bestseller every year. And yet no book has ever been attacked more than the Bible. As far back as 303 AD, the Roman emperor Diocletian, he ordered that all Bibles be burned, put an end to it. Well, his efforts obviously failed. The French Enlightenment philosopher Voltaire, he once bragged, he said, in a hundred years from now, the Bible will be a forgotten book and you will need to visit a museum to see one. Well, actually, a hundred years later, the house that Voltaire had lived in was purchased by the Geneva Bible Society as a base from which to distribute Bibles. So even today as we speak, people are, and groups are, are waging war on the Bible and they will feel, and they have failed and they will feel. The scripture says in both the Old and New Testament, in Isaiah 1 and in, in Isaiah and in 1 Peter respectively, the word of the Lord stands forever. The word of the Lord stands forever. And it is proving to be so. I believe that the Bible's indestructibility is a piece of evidence supporting its divine origin and its divine protection. The second piece of external evidence is the Bible's reliability. You see, because skeptics have failed to rid the world of the Bible, they have tried to discredit and destroy its authority instead. That old favorite, did God really say? The Bible has gone through every kind of scrutiny from archaeology, science, literature, philosophy, computers. Yet despite all the attacks, the Bible proves itself over and over again. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran in 1948, which are the oldest manuscripts of the Old Testament ever found, they confirm that the scribes who painstakingly copied the Bible did so with the utmost of care and precision. Third piece of external evidence I want to suggest is the Bible's accuracy. It is historically correct, and no one has ever proved it otherwise. You see, we can check things like the date of the return uh, to, to Jerusalem from Babylon, the return of the exiles, and the birth of Jesus uh, during the time when Quirinius was governor of Syria. We can go to a secular history book or encyclopedia and check them there. It's all there. And Nelson Gluck, a renowned Jewish archaeologist, he says no, archeo no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. I want to conclude this morning with one final piece of external evidence, and it's simply this, the Bible's impact, the Bible's impact. <clears throat> the difference that Scripture has made and continues to make in the lives of those who believe it and live it out points to its divine origin. The Bible says this about itself in Hebrews chapter 4, the word of God is living and active. In Acts 20, the apostle said, Apostle Paul says, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance amongst all those who are being sanctified. 
So just as I finish, the Bible's power and authority is unlike any other book. Millions of lives, including my own, and I know many of you here, have been transformed by the supernatural power of the Word of God. I heard a story from a jail. And the Gideons had come to visit that jail and to give out little pocket New Testaments to the prisoners. And one guy who wasn't a Christian... He took a New Testament because he thought, well, all those nice, uh, small, thin little pages would be just perfect for his rolly cigarettes. That's what he would use them for, making his roll-up cigarettes. So he tore out the first page, and he made up a rolly, and he smoked it, and, and, and that, over the next few weeks, he, or over the next few days, he smoked his way through Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he just started into John when something caught his eye. And it was this verse from John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And the Holy Spirit took that written word and in that moment made it a living word for him and applied it to his heart and his mind. And the light came on, the penny dropped, and the love of God just came over him. And he believed in Jesus. And he accepted that gift of eternal life there and then. And so, friends, the story continues, and the Spirit and the Word of God continue to become the living Word to us in these days. We have people in our new members class, people in our last Alpha course, people sitting here this morning in church for whom this is, is the case, has been the case in recent days and weeks. And many of us can testify to the living Word, this power of the Word and Spirit working together the power to save and to shape and sustain us individually, collectively as a congregation, even as a city and a nation. So this Jubilee weekend, let us be reminded today that indeed this is the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. Here is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. And let us let the word of God loose in our lives, in our city, and in our nation. Let us be listening up for him as he speaks to us through it. And let us continue to pray for that fresh wind, that fresh wind of the Spirit to blow across our land and to make his word become increasingly alive to all of us. Shall we pray for a moment? Let us pray. Father God, Jeremiah exhorts us this morning to hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus said the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. So on this Pentecost Sunday, we pray that you would continue to speak the truth of your word and to move by your Holy Spirit. Bring your word alive to us in our hearts and minds. Make your word a living word to us. Inform our minds and warm our hearts and help us to respond to you in faith. And let us take a moment in God's presence and in the silence of our own hearts to continue responding, listening and responding to what God is saying, to what he is doing amongst us. Lord, as we live for you and worship and serve you in the days ahead, 
continue to build your church in this and every land. Pour out your spirit. Speak your word. Use us wherever you will, amongst whomever you will, and however you will. For we pray all these things for your glory alone. In the power of the Spirit. And in the precious name of your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ, the King of kings. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.